pray that, uh, that uh, Lord, we just be able to comprehend uh, the love that you have for us. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started on chapter 37, and uh, uh, we're going to go over some of the same stuff we went last week, but just to kind of give you a little rundown of where we started, uh, uh, Jacob has uh, actually kind of singled Joseph out as his favorite son, and uh, uh he clearly favored Joseph. He gave him this multicolored coat, and uh, he Jacob had Joseph uh, checking up on his older brother's work, and so there's some strife in the family because you know they got the younger brother kind of overseeing the older brothers, and um, actually the rest of the book of Genesis is going to be about uh, Jacob's family, and primarily it's going to be about the life of Joseph. We're going to take a slight detour tonight and when we get to 38 and talk about uh, his son Judah. But I'm going to start at verse 5, chapter 37, verse 5. So now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. Uh, so he said to them, please hear the dream which I have dreamed. So he's basically going to recount what he's already told them. And uh, there were... Uh, there we were binding sheaves in the field. So um, sheaves, I don't know. I grew up in a farm area, so these are sheaves. So they were they were tying those up. So that's what sheaves look like if you're not familiar with that. Uh, that's when they harvest. Uh, these are, I think, wheat here. Uh, we're more kind of into baling and doing big rolls. Uh, back in the day, this was a preferred method. So it says in verse 7 again, there we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf rose, arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves uh, stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So it basically has another dream, and it's kind of the exact same dream, but it, this one includes his, his mom and dad in it too. So verse 9, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers uh, and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bow down to me. And so the, the sun and the moon represent his father and mother. Uh, and verse 10, uh, so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father uh, kept the matter in mind. I think last week we talked a little bit about uh, his, Jacob probably, he didn't really say anything about it because I think maybe in his heart of hearts, he might have been able to look into the future and see something like this happening. Uh, but what I want to talk a little bit about tonight is his brothers, they they envied him. And uh, I started looking into the whole envy thing, and the Bible really has quite a bit to say about uh, envy. And so uh, number one uh, uh, is Proverbs uh, 14.30 on your sheet there, and it says... Uh, 
A sound heart is, a, is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. So that's a pretty graphic description of how God feels about uh, envy, literally rottenness to the bones. Number two uh, is Proverbs twenty-three, seventeen and 18. Uh, verse 17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners. Okay, so you're looking at people around you. I think that's a fairly common thing to do. But, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. So it's basically, we've kind of been talking about this uh, every so often since we started it. You know, God's in it for the long game. And basically, there's, that's what he's saying here. You know, don't let your heart envy sinners. You see people that are, you know, evil. It's prospering around you. He says, but in contrast to that, be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter. In other words, we have an eternal existence in your hope our hope of eternity will not be cut off. So when I was looking through this, I was reading what a lot of different people had to say about envy. And this guy, Warren Worsby, he's a, he's a pretty smart guy. and uh, He had a he had a little definition of, of uh, envy. I'm just going to read to you. He, he talks about envy and malice. And this is what he says. Is, envy has a sister named Malice. Uh, and the two usually work together. Envy causes inward pain when we see others succeed. And malice produces inward satisfaction when we see others fail. Here, I'm going to read that one more time. Envy causes inward pain when we see others succeed. Malice produces inward satisfaction when we see others fail. Envy and malice usually generate slander and unwarranted criticism. And when these two sins hide behind the veil of religious zeal and self-righteousness, the poison they produce is even more deadly. Um, I'll just stop there. I just want to read one more verse. And I listed some verses about it. And I really could have... There was about, I don't know, 40, 50 verses on envy in the Bible that... I, I just picked a few randomly, and I'll just read one more, and then we'll move on. In 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, see that malice is in there, all deceit, uh, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So there's some pretty good verses I listed there. And if you want to do a word study, you just go to a Strong's and look for every occurrence of envy. It's pretty interesting. So we're going to see envy play out here in a little bit. And, uh, you know, his brothers were envious of him. We're going to see what how that uh, comes to fruition. So... And we know that Jacob kept the matter in mind. We talked about that. Verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you them. So he said to him, Here am I, or here I am. 
verse 14. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out uh, of the valley Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now uh, Now a certain man found him, and... And there he was, wandering in the field. It's kind of an interesting way. Uh, Joseph just out there, where do I go? Uh, And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So he'd already been walking for about three days at this point. So to go to Dotham, he had another another day's walk to get there. In verse 18, now they saw him afar off before he came near to them. You know why, right? He had his multicolored tunic on. He's kind of like stood out like a beacon out there. Here comes that guy in the tuxedo walking across, right? (laughs) And they conspired against him to kill him. That's pretty brutal, huh? Uh, this is uh, envy at work here. Uh, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. And actually, dreamer could have been master of dreamers. Uh, and verse 20, come therefore and let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered them out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might, uh, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So we see Reuben kind of intervening here, and I, he may be trying to get back on the good side of his dad because, you know, he just had that little scene with the... Uh, one of his dad's concubines. And so who knows what his motives were. Then verse 23, So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they uh, took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty and there was no water in it. So it was like a cistern cistern that was out there and it was dry. And so... uh, It says in verse 25, And then they sat down to eat a meal. Uh, Then they lifted their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So the brothers are just sitting around a campfire there, and they're eating, and they look up, and here comes this, this caravan passing by, and in verse 26, so Judah said to his brothers, uh, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites uh, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listens. Then the Midianite traders uh, passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So if you notice in that passage, one time they're talking about Ishmaelites, another time they're talking about Midianites. And actually those terms can be used interchangeably. So basically it was 
in the culture in that day, if you said Ishmaelites or Midianites, it meant the same thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, Judah, uh, hey, man, maybe we can make some money on this. And so they uh, they sold him for, uh, what, what was it, 20, 20 pieces of silver, 20 shekels. So they took him to Egypt. Can you imagine that, though? I mean, your brothers throw you into this pit. I mean, they took his tunic off him. I'm wondering, like, you know, was it boxers or briefs, you know? I mean, he's just, the guys, they took his clothes, you know, and sold him. It'd have to be like a horrible thing. It's going to be a day that he'd probably remember for the rest of his life. Huh? They they did it. <laughs> yeah, they did it. Yeah. So, I mean, I just can't even imagine that. I mean, that's like the worst. Verse 29, Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. So they, when, when somebody in the culture, if they were feeling a lot of uh, duress, they would tear their clothes. It was kind of like an outward display, like, I'm really upset. Uh, so he tore his clothes in verse 30, and he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? Because he's worried, right? So they took Joseph's tunic, and they killed a kid of the goats, and they dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they went, um, then they sent the tunic of many colors, uh, and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether uh, it is your son's tunic or not? I mean, Really? I mean, like they wouldn't recognize. <laughs> it's just kind of crazy. But but in verse 33, of course, you know, Jacob, and he recognized it and said, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Uh, without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. So here again, you hear about this thing tear their clothes, put on sackcloth, which is like a burlap. Uh, and a lot of times the ashes is involved in it also. But it is just a, a way of showing mourning. So number three, just as Jacob deceived his father by wearing Esau's clothes, his sons deceive him with Joseph's tunic. So number three, if you're filling in the blanks or it's deceived, it's kind of interesting how that happens, isn't it? Kind of the same sort of thing that he did. Now his sons are pulling on him. Verse 35, And all of his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son, uh, to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Potiphar, the the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So in verse 35, when he refused to be comforted, uh, it was a term uh, basically uh, when when somebody would die in your family and uh, and then you go through the grieving process and at a, at a certain point, you know, you're kind of, you kind of get over it, you know. Uh, we know now that, you know, six months later, it's going to come back again and maybe two years after that, it's come back here. It's going to come back even again. But, but uh, in the context here, 
he he just kept grieving. He says, uh, what was it? He refused to be comforted. In other words, he just couldn't get over the grief of losing his son. So uh, number four, uh, though, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, captain of the guard. It's actually, he was kind of head of the prison system. But it, when you look up the whole guard part there, it's really referring to executioners. So in your blank on that is executioners. So, uh, yeah. So we can see that Joseph's life is just beginning to unfold as we come to chapter 38. And then the story just stops and it shifts to uh, his brother Judah. And it's really kind of a parallel account here um, of what's going on. Uh, For whatever reason, uh, they had to put it in here someplace because... Uh, it talks about Judah and the line of Judah is very important. So this chapter about Judah gets put in there. And then next week, uh, we'll move on to uh, chapter 39. It'll pick up the story of of uh, Joseph again. But in reality, these two stories are kind of running parallel side by side concurrently with one another. So it's not like the events of uh, Joseph's life stop and now we go to Judah and then come back they're actually going side by side so in uh, Genesis 38 uh, verse 1 it says it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was uh, Hira and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name uh, Shelah. Uh, uh, he was at Shezib uh, when she bore him. It's kind of interesting because if you think back of what we've talked about so far, um, uh, um, Abraham like made it clear that he didn't want Isaac to be marrying uh, a Canaanite woman. It was like he kind of went out of his way. Remember, he sent uh, Eliezer off to find uh, the wife for uh, Isaac. And then in the same way, uh, when the problems developed in um Isaac's house and, you know, the whole deception went on. They sent Jacob off so he wouldn't marry a Canaanite woman. And so it's it's kind of interesting that Judah goes and marries a, you know, a Canaanite uh, woman. Um, so it's it's hard to decide if, did he know what he was doing and he just did it anyway? Uh, you know, it's there's no way of knowing for sure, but I think uh, we're going to read on. We'll see what happens. So between verses 3 and verse 6, we're on verse 6 now, there's uh, quite a bit of time has passed by, okay? Quite a bit of time has passed by uh, because we're going to see Judas picking a wife for his firstborn. Uh, so let's read in verse 6. Uh, so then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. 
But Ur, Judas' firstborn, was wicked uh, in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. So I got a little note to self here. uh, Avoid being wicked. All right? And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. So it was a common practice then for, you know, if... uh, you had two brothers or three brothers or whatever, and one of the brothers died. It was the the custom, actually, at this point in time to that one of the brothers would go and marry his deceased brother's wife, and they would have kids, and that they would have heirs. And So it was kind of a custom at the time here. It was actually written into the Law of Moses uh, later on. And so uh, just a common thing, but in verse 9, But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he mitted on the ground uh, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord and therefore he killed him also. So I hope you understand what just happened there. If you don't, you can talk to me later. We'll have the birds and bees talk, okay? Uh, yeah. So now we've got two brothers down, right? And so there, we've, we've got a problem here because Tamar married the first guy. He died. And the second guy, she was supposed to take his place. Now he's dead also. And so in verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, uh, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown. For he said, lest he die, lest he also die like his brothers. So it's kind of like, <laughs> it sounds like to me anyway that, that uh, Judah is saying, hey, you, know, you go home and, you know, stay with your dad for a while and then, you know, basically I don't want you hanging around with my last son because Seems like every son you hang around with, they end up dying. So it's kind of like he's sort of maybe blaming her for the deaths of his sons. So, uh, so let me start verse eleven again. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, "Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shela uh, is grown." For he said, "Lest he also die like his brothers." And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So. Tamar leaves, she goes and stays at her dad's house, and she waits for Judas, Judah's youngest son to basically grow up. So verse 12, Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted. So she, you know, his wife passed away. So when he says he was comforted, it just means that he went through the grieving process, and he was kind of over that. And he went up to his sheep shearers to Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Uh, and, it was, and it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is uh, going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. 
Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So the next thing, we got a little scene here. It's like a it's a business transaction. You know, this is prostitution. So she said, What will you give me uh, that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So she's looking for collateral. So she says, uh, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Like, hey, I need something, a down payment or something here. And um, then he said, what pledge shall I give you? And so she said, your signet, which is just a seal that was connected to this cord, and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she rose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she's got this seal. It's almost like, I guess, the closest thing I can think of it in a modern day would be, he gave her his credit card, you know. It was like, this would uniquely identify him. It was a, you know, they'd have the clay tablets. They would do like a bill of sale on the clay tablet. He would push his seal into it, and that was his official signature on a document. So she's got that official seal, and they would put him on a cord, and actually it was a lot of times it was a bracelet, just hang off the wrist. And so he's got that, and plus she's got his staff. So uh, let me see here. It says here uh, in verse 20, uh, then, so she's, she just, one time deal with her, she goes back, gets back in her widow's clothes, goes back to her dad's house. And she had a, a veil on. They would all, oh yeah, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. When he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? So he's asking about this harlot. And if you look, uh, the harlot in here, I mean, we pretty much know that that's a prostitute. But in where they were living, uh, she would be uh, number five. A harlot equals uh, a female temple prostitute. So they had male and female prostitutes in these Canaanite religions. I mean, they elevated sexual perversion to, you know, the highest level. And so, but they would wear the veil. They they dress, just dress different. And um, so, it, but so it says here, uh, 21, then he asked the men of the place saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. Okay, so this is obviously a one-time deal for Tamar. Uh, so he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. And then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shame. For I sent this young goat and you have not found her. That gets interesting here. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So you can see it's uh, it, it, it had it was more than just she was a prostitute. She was considered 
like a, a temple prostitute so rather this Canaanite religion. So it made it even worse. So, uh, so anyway, so Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Whoa. Serious business. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Number six, Judah admitted he was wrong. You know, it may seem like a a small thing that he admitted he was wrong, but if you think about the problems that people have between each other, uh, at some point or another, somebody does somebody wrong, and, and they know that. But for whatever reason, they're not willing to, you know, confess to that person, you know, what I did was wrong. And it totally destroys relationships. And uh, so it's a, uh, it just jumped out at me. I've seen so many things go wrong because people would just, couldn't say, you know, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done it, you know. So, verse 27, Now it came to pass... At that time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. So it was said when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it to his hand, saying, this one came first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach is upon you, therefore... His name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out uh, who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was Zara. So one of them was Breach. I'd say uh, on verse, on chapter 38, uh, if you kind of look at the events of chapter 38, uh, they're kind of sketchy. Uh, they're kind of sketchy uh, that, I mean, I just if you was to put that same sort of a situation into modern day culture, and probably not acceptable, at least within, you know, the religious community or whatever. Uh, uh, Tamar had, uh, I'm just looking at Tamar, it was just kind of a, a bizarre, um, bizarre life. I mean, n- not, I wouldn't call it not really good at all. I mean, she was kind of vindicated by Judah. I mean, Judah, he manned up and said, my man, I, this is, I mean, this is what happened. It's really my fault. And he, you know, he was, he took, he took accountability for the situation, but all in all, it's kind of a different thing. And I think that if you're not familiar with the story, I mean, for people hearing it for the first time, I think they'd be kind of shocked to hear that. This kind of stuff was in the Bible. So it's kind of interesting to know uh, how God works because if you go to Matthew chapter 1, uh, Matthew chapter 1, 
And uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Matthew chapter 1 starts off with a genealogy. You remember from last week, I think there was a, we had a little fill in the blanks that said the purpose of the genealogies in the Bible were to be able to point to the line of Christ so that, you know, you could go from Adam all the way to Christ. And Or in the case of Matthew, they start at Abraham and go all the way to Christ. So there's two different genealogies. One's the genealogy of Joseph. That's the one in Matthew. The one in Luke is the genealogy of Mary. Uh, normally a, wooden, a woman wouldn't have been in there, but... Uh, uh, since it was a virgin birth, Luke traced the line of Mary. So in Matthew, uh, let's read what it says. We're just going to read three of the verses. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. So he names her. He names her, in a, and normally they would never, ever name a woman in a genealogy. And Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. And then it goes on, it gets all the way down to Jesus. And so I'm thinking, there's so many people that have no idea about God. I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, they're at my work, they're everywhere. They know nothing about God. And if they could just understand that you take this chapter of 38, relative ugliness, and in the mind of people that think that all you know Christians or religious people are goody-two-shoes and they never do anything wrong or whatever, and then to go to this chapter 38 and read the life of Tamar, the life that she had, and then you go back and you find her name in the genealogy that goes to the Savior of the world. You see what I'm saying? It's, uh, it's pretty amazing because God doesn't really uh, care about who you are or where you come from or anything. Because when John 3.16 says God so loved the world, that means everybody, right? Even including Tamar, who had kind of a sketchy background. So what I want to do is I want to go to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. If you could turn there, Ephesians chapter 2. And I just want to read this because in light of the story of Tamar, I want to read this with that in our background. I think because the Jews that were reading from the, the letter to the Ephesians, they would have had this sort of knowledge just kind of floating around in their brain. So starting at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So keep in mind, he's talking to the church now. So he describes non-believers, right? He describes how all of us were 
before we got saved. In essence, he's describing the whole situation in Genesis chapter 38, right? He's, he's describing that in verse 4. But, okay, that but is such an important word because it always means in contrast to what I just said. Okay, so but God, okay? That is, whenever you read but God, there's something good going to come after it. Who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says in parentheses, by grace you've been saved. In verse 6, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, the classic Christianity here, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what did Tamar do? If you think about it. She didn't do anything really consciously to get into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I think, I think probably what was motivating her most is she, I need to have a son to take care of me when I'm old. I need to get my social security in place here, you know. What was probably her motivation. But you know what? God looked at that and said, you know what? This is going to be the line. So we could come here and we could talk about Tamar. He says... And verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I just look at this Tamar, you know, and you look at God's grace on her, and, uh, you know, and, and look at Judah's reaction saying, you know what, I was wrong. I was wrong. And I think there's a whole bunch to think about there in terms of, you know, uh, how we should live our lives and just the nature of God. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and we thank you that uh, that uh, we can see that, that, Lord, your grace has been evident from the very beginning in the lives of everyone that you touch. And we just thank you for that. And Lord, we just pray that, uh, just pray that we be able to comprehend that. And Lord... Uh, that we'd open our mouths and tell other people. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.